Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Should we ever be reinterpreting Scripture in order to fit science. When, when we actually find something and when we seem to have good, verifiable, experimental evidence for it in the modern world, and it seems to conflict or contradict with something as we look back to the scriptures, should we actually then be reinterpreting our understanding of what the Bible says in order to fit science? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode of The Winsome Creationist. I feel like this is the topic that just will not go away for me, okay? Uh, we've approached this before in different ways on the podcast, and we're going to approach it again in a little bit different way this time. And, and I really want to get to the bottom of this because it's important that we see these two things as being distinct, okay? Understanding Scripture is on one hand, and understanding science is on the other hand. These are two different things, and the relationship between them is... Um, interesting. It is controversial. It is not agreed upon. And this is going to be another one of those blue sky episodes where I, I've got some quotes. I've got some things I want to talk through here. Um, but really what we're doing is thinking out loud. And so I invite you to sort of think and explore along with me here on uh, this episode. And of course, your comments are always welcome uh, below if you are watching on YouTube as well. So I want to start with this quote from Todd Wood. I, I believe I pulled this from his book, the quest, and uh, it's a little bit longer quote, um, but it's really, really interesting. And so I think you'll um, uh, appreciate it. So he says this, quote, there is no room in Galileo's model for careful exegesis to determine what the biblical text might be saying as a corrective or boundary for science. Let me just stop there, okay? <laughs> that itself is important because this whole idea of Galileo and his view, essentially, of geocentrism and um, cosmology and all this stuff, okay? It's important to realize that in Galileo's model, he, he wasn't, ne like, carefully exegeting the text on its own to determine what it might be saying as a corrective or a boundary level for science. That's not what Galileo did, okay? What Galileo did, and if you're—I can't go through all the context on this podcast, okay? So there's lots of things you can read and. Uh, again, Todd's uh, book is a great one to pick up. He discusses this at length in there. And I'm reading another one by Danny Faulkner uh, about the flat earth model and all this where he discusses this in there as well. Look, it's a big conversation, but if you're jumping in the middle with me and you know what I'm talking about, then then let's let's keep going, okay? So so Galileo is at no point saying that the biblical text should, should you know, like what, what are the boundary levels or what's the corrective there for science? He's not saying that. For him, science is the deciding factor. So keeping reading, no. Science is the deciding factor. If science says something, the Bible must be reinterpreted to fit. My description of accommodation is unsettling and often upsetting to modern theistic evolutionists. They do not like such blunt talk, and they do not want to admit that they are reinterpreting Scripture according to the dictates of science. 
Yet, that is precisely what Galileo argues in his letter, uh, excuse me, in his letter to the Grand Duchess, and it's hard to argue that that is not happening today. The recent and steady parade of books describing the textual and theological gymnastics that evangelical scholars must perform to fit evolution into the Bible speaks for itself. Now, what a quote, right? Uh, Todd is not holding back there. And so th this idea comes up of when we see something in the scripture that seems to contradict modern science, who wins, right? Does scripture win? Does science win? What does that interplay look like? Well, one thing's for sure. Without having a sort of robust understanding of what's happening when someone actually approaches the text of Scripture itself, okay, and what happens when somebody is actually approaching science as an enterprise on its own, without having an understanding of who wins when there is a discrepancy or what the nature of that looks like, um, it can be really, really tough to arrive at an accurate conclusion. And I think the, man, per perhaps the principal error, at least when it comes to this conversation, okay, that has been made um, by anyone interested in how science interfaces with the Bible. I think the principal error has been tying science to the Bible, period, end of sentence, right? Tying science to the Bible in one way or another. Now, you might say, Steve, that's kind of weird to say. This is a creation science podcast, right? You're a creationist. Okay, yes, but that does not mean the Bible is a science te textbook or, or a book of science. Okay, the Bible is primarily a book of theology and a book of history. Okay, where some, I believe, make a mistake is by suggesting that, a, that this book, because it is primarily concerned with theology, that it's okay to make statements that would be um, historical in nature and have them carry a degree of historical weight if they are talking about things that we know uh, we will have more information about in the future or in the modern day than they had when the Bible was being written. So to be really like, to, to, to bring it down to the bottom shelf here, um, it's okay if the Bible is recording things accurately about history. But when it gets the details wrong, ah, now that history might not be so accurate, okay? And what a lot of people want to have creationists doing, what, what they think creationists are doing, is looking at, say, Genesis 1 and saying, ah, animals like created on a certain day, and so science and science and like the anatomy of the snake and like did the snake originally not have legs and like so now we're doing biology. And I'll admit, creationists over the years have done that. Of course they have, okay? But my contention is that the modern creationist movement is not doing that, okay? And and it, and if it is, it's very much on the way out, and it would be more fringe, okay? Nobody is looking at Genesis 1 and looking for specific scientific models. Now, old earth creationists do this, and I'll explain that in a minute if I, if I remember. I should remember because I have something about it written down, okay? So um, we're not looking at Genesis 1, for example, and, and looking for scientific details. We're looking for historical details. We're looking for, does the Bible actually say, does it record, historically speaking, that there were six days of creation? Now notice, that is not a claim of science. That is a claim of history. Now, there is science that can be done based on that knowledge. For instance, in baromenology, which is a system of biosystematics uh, that 
is concerned with making a distinction between organisms in dissimilarity. So it's not focused on similarity only. It's focused on dissimilarity as well. Okay. One, just, just one, just one small piece of the data points that could go into that discussion are the idea that um, animals created on day five would be distinct from animals created on day six. Okay, that is a data point. It's one data point. And it's a data point that is uh, it's significant. I'll give you that. But that's not the same as looking at Genesis 1 and saying, oh, Genesis 1 is teaching science. Nobody says Genesis 1 is teaching science. We're saying Genesis 1 teaches history. And the history of Genesis 1 is that certain animals, birds, fish, etc., were created on day five, and that other kinds of animals were created on day six, and humans created on day six, etc. So we have that as a data point, as a fundamental separation. Okay, we are applying what we learn from history to the science, okay? And, and not looking for the science in the text, okay? One might argue, and again, I'm just uh, just blue sky and trying to play devil's advocate with myself here. One might argue that the term uh, baromenology, because it's taken from the idea of created kind, I can, I can see how some would look at that and think, oh, they're trying to derive science from the text. But again, even that, and it might not even be the perfect naming that was created in like the 50s or something by Frank Lewis Marshall. Um, that a, a terminology for, for using the men and then it was adapted to baromenology by Kurt Wise in the early 90s and boom, that's what it became, created kinds, baromenology, the study of created kinds. Um, it still does not mean <laughs> that we're actually using the Bible to suggest that there is some sort of scientific model. For example, in Todd's uh, book, The Quest, that I just quoted to you, he is not convinced of sort of uh, all of the criteria that have been listed out uh, for baromenology. In other words, over the years, there have been different scientists who have had ideas about what the criteria should look like. At one time, it was pretty much considered that, yeah, if an animal could hybridize with another one, uh, then it was, um, uh, then, then you know, they, they belong to, in some sense, the same created kind. And... We knew that didn't go far enough because, like, we don't really know that to be the case with lots of dead animals, right? And so we, we needed to have something that would actually classify them. And then we figured out that actually um, there are lots of other um, considerations that go into the dissimilarity of organisms. And when you look at the biblical kind, and Todd explains this in the book uh, better than I uh, can right here, but it's, it's not necessarily clear what it looks like when it says um, that animals reproduced after their kind. So notice we're not taking the words of scripture and saying we are going to derive a scientific model from this we're using what apparently seemed to be the case historically speaking and then we are taking and trying to create a scientific model from it and the scientific model is subject to change okay so just to be really clear on this point right the bible says that um animals were created and they reproduce after their kind Okay, now we're looking at science, okay? The biblical text didn't change, okay, after their kind. We're trying to understand what that means. We will adjust our science as we come to a more uh, clearer understanding, an ever more clear understanding of what that phrase, after their kind, means. But what we're not doing, this is so important, what we're not doing is going into the lab and creating a scientific model 
and saying, this appears to be what happens. Therefore, the Bible, when it says after their kind, must mean this. Okay, that is not what's happening. And that is what would be happening if we were attempting to use the Bible as a scientific textbook. Okay, now, I want you to have that in your mind. If you disagree with that, let me know. But I'm pretty sure I'm speaking accurately on this point, okay? Now, let's look at a different example, okay? A very vague and very um, uh, more generally applicable example of the Big Bang, okay? Now, uh, a fellow named Luke Nix, I'm sure he's a great guy. He wrote a guest blog on the Cross-Examined website. This was years ago now. I responded to it at length on my blog. Um, actually, I'm not even sure. I can't remember now if this was the one he wrote for Cross-Examined or if this was one that he did reviewing the Ish Genesis history movie. Um, it might have been that. and I, So I can't remember exactly which, and, and please forgive me on that. Um, uh, but I did go pull this quote from, uh, from the blog that he wrote, um, and then I responded to it. And, and so the point that he made, and I'll, I'm going to give the point, and then I'm going to read his quote, and then we'll go from there, okay? So the point that he was making is that we have a, a Big Bang model, and uh, allegedly, the Big Bang model makes the most sense of anything that we've seen um, in terms of explaining the origin of the universe. Again, this is how, how Luke uh, believes and how many believe, okay? Yep, the Big Bang, this is it. This is the model. This is it. Now that we know that, now that we know that, now we can go back to the Bible and we can say, ah, so that is what this means. In the beginning, God created, boom, Big Bang, the heavens and the earth. And Hugh Ross has different ways of thinking about this as well. He's an astronomer. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he says that the Bible predicted three different features of the Big Bang, at least three, maybe even more features of the Big Bang. The Bible, the Bible predicted, notice the words, the Bible predicted these features of the Big Bang. So now we have this. Now we're in the 21st century and we know about this Big Bang thing. And now we can go back to the Bible retrospectively and say, ah, it predicted that this would happen. Okay, nobody, just, just to, to take a time out, nobody is saying, ah, animals reproduce after their kind. We did this test. We have the scientific model. So the Bible predicted that this would be the case. That's not what a creationist is saying, a young age creationist, okay? The old age creationist is saying, we have this Big Bang model. Ah, this looks like how it happened. And we go back. Okay. Same thing, by the way, is happening back in Galileo's day, right? They're doing all the people were so smart, right? They were doing all of these, uh, all of the science. And they were looking at this and they had this, the, the scientifically established model of the day of geocentrism and the, um, the Ptolemaic model and all of this, right? And so they had this scientific establishment and they, what they did is a sharp shot. They went back to the Bible and looking for these statements, ah, oh, the day the sun stood still, and this, that, and the other thing, and the earth shall not be moved. And then they start to get these ideas from Scripture and apply them to their scientific model. That's the error that was being made. Okay? And so back to the Big Bang example, right? So this, these are the exact words verbatim that Luke said. And when God's actions unequivocally reveal an ancient universe, we need to change our interpretation of what God's word in Genesis means to reflect his actions and not our fallible ideas. Okay, so, so that's the end of the quote. So he's, what he's trading on is some of this language that, that oftentimes Ken Ham likes to use, et cetera, um, you know, about sticking to God's word instead of man's word, which is fallible, et cetera. Okay, so he's trading on some of that language. 
And he's talking about the fact that because we know that we have the Big Bang and, and, and we know this model and, and we have this ancient universe as a result of this model, because we know that, now we can look back to the Bible and we need to, again, and I quote, change our interpretation of what God's word in Genesis means. Change our interpretation of what God's word in Genesis means to reflect his actions and not our fallible ideas. In this case, young earth creationism. Our fallible idea was young earth creationism. But now we have modern science. Now, here's the problem, okay? So I hope you understand what's happening there. The wagon has been officially hitched up between modern science and the biblical text. And when you've got this wagon hitched, what happens when the modern science changes? We're going back again, and we're reinterpreting Scripture. Okay, this cannot be the case. This can't be how we approach this, okay? What we have to do is take the Scripture and understand what it's trying to communicate to its audience. And I get that there's disagreement about that, but we have to perform this study independently. What is the scripture trying to teach? And then over here, what is science trying to teach? And understand them separately. Now, is it possible? Is it possible? And this is going to get into the next point. Is it possible that when we are looking at science, it could teach us something that could perhaps uh, could perhaps alter our understanding of the biblical text of an illumination. Okay, now I want to try to use this case study as an example. Okay, let's just say that you believe the behemoth in Job is a Brachiosaurus dinosaur. Okay. If, if you did not um, have that belief, well, you couldn't have that belief prior to the discovery of any dinosaurs. Okay, so if you were a Bible interpreter and you didn't have that framework in the real world to look at, it's something that could be a Brachiosaurus dinosaur, okay? And you were reading the biblical text, you might wonder what this thing is. Okay, you might. And different things have been offered over the years, okay? There are those who think it was a real animal. There are those who think it's purely a mythological creature, not real to it at all, not real at all. I'm, I'm actually not going to speak to that right now anyway. Like, that's a different thing altogether, okay? But would it be legitimate when we discovered Brachiosaurus to then look back at that text and say, ah, this is talking about a Brachiosaurus dinosaur. Now, young age creationists have done this, and we must acknowledge this. This has happened. Some of you, most of you maybe even listening right now, probably think that. I think it's likely, but here's the difference, okay? Um, when you look at the text, and you can read, he's not a young age creationist, by the way. You can read um, John Oswald on this point, a uh, great book called The Bible Among the Myths. He makes the point that the context of the passage, right? Forget about modern science. Forget about any of that. The context of the passage seems to indicate over and against what a lot of people seem to think about them being purely mythological creatures. When you talk about the uh, behemoth and the Leviathan, uh, the context of the passages in which they appear, with perhaps with the exception of one of them, it, it, they're, they're in a context where a physical creature makes the most sense. Okay? So you're looking at this description of this animal. It doesn't stay what this animal is. I think the most that you can really glean from the text is 
well, this is a real animal or this is a mythological creature and the point is strictly theological, okay? So this would be the difference in my view, okay? You can only go so far with the text. I don't think you could say, yep, the text is a brachiosaur, right? Even though many have tried to do that, okay? Um, I don't think that's the kind of thing that we want to do. We want to say, yeah, the text gives us these boundary points of what could be the case. Based on the physical description that we see, there are a couple things that could be the case, and it sure seems like, as crazy as it might sound to some people, a Brachiosaurus dinosaur could certainly fit the description of a tail like a cedar, chest like iron, and whatever else, right? Like, that kind of makes sense. Now, I know there's lots of different interpretations around that, but I'm just saying, that kind of makes sense. What we're not doing, again, what we're not doing is saying, ah, we have this discovery of a Brachiosaur, therefore, Job is definitely talking about a Brachiosaur. That's what it is, okay? That's not what we're trying to do. Now, again, some have tried to do that, but that's not what I think a faithful interpretation of a young age creationist position and a, um, not to get all into the concordance versus non-concordance debate, that's not what we want to do, okay? That's not wise. Just because some have done it doesn't mean it's wise. But the vast majority of people, especially old age creationists who follow Hugh Ross and them, this is what they're doing. They are saying, we have the Big Bang, therefore, um, Genesis 1 is talking about the Big Bang, okay? Um, we have laws of physics, therefore, Jeremiah 33, 25 is talking about God establishing laws of physics, okay? See these direct correlations between these scientific models and the therefore, this is what the Bible is, and we're going to reinterpret it every time to fit our whims, okay? Um, again, not what we're trying to do here. Now, Let's go to my friend Tyler. He's probably going to watch this video. I hope he does. Um, my friend Tyler Vela, who responded to um, uh, some of the videos that we did recently, the video on my channel here uh, with Mark Lambert uh, that was in response to IP. And uh, he made the point, um, it, it was actually a relatively small point, I think, that we had made in that video. And he actually took some time to respond to it. Um, uh, basically taking issue with everything that I'm saying here. Uh, and may, I don't know, maybe he wouldn't like, you know, you could tell me, like, maybe, maybe this has made more sense or maybe not, because I'm thinking out loud, so it probably hasn't made more sense. Um, but uh, in, in sort of elucidating this and thinking more clearly about this, okay? So our creation is guilty of doing the same thing, and he points to this example of phenomenological language, okay? So again, ah, now that we have modern science, okay, let's just use the geocentrism example, okay? Now we have this modern scientific model. And so now we're sharpshooting. Now we're saying that instead of the day the sun stood still and all that with Joshua and the earth shall not be moved and all these passages, now that we know observationally and scientifically that those things aren't true, what we're doing is looking back to those biblical passages and reinterpreting them just like the Big Bang um, uh, proponent wants to go back and, and reinterpret Genesis 1. We're actually going back to these passages and reinterpreting them in light of modern science as phenomenological language. Okay, now, I think there's two things at play here. Is that a thing that probably some people did or have done in the past? Yes. Why? Because they hitched their wagon of science to the Bible. They made the fundamental mistake, okay? The core mistake of hitching the wagon of science to the Bible and trying to find this direct correlation between a scientific model and the text of Scripture, okay? 
versus doing an independent study, doing what Todd said that I read in the very beginning, careful exegesis to determine what the biblical text might be saying as a corrective or a boundary for science. Now notice, all of these passages that we're talking about, not all of them, but some of them at least, are in very poetic contexts, okay? So a faithful exegesis of the text of Scripture, when you're looking at something like the earth shall not be moved, okay, in the passage that it's in, and I'm not going to go read that right now. You're welcome to go read that. I encourage you to, okay? People made the mistake in the past. They did. Of looking at that and saying the earth shall not be moved, so it's this stationary object, this flat stationary object. We know the earth spins, and so da 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 right? Well, isn't it funny how overly literal you have to read the text of Scripture to come away with that interpretation? That's a very literal reading of a very poetic passage. And so, very arguably, the correct interpretation to start with is this is a poetic passage. The earth shall not be moved. From the standpoint of the observer, which is what the biblical text is written in, okay, the earth does not move. And in no way does the biblical writer suggest to be doing science here. What the biblical writer is trying to do is make the theological point that God's strength and God's sovereignty will make it such that the earth around him shall not be moved which is true. That is the observation that he is seeing. The earth is not moved, and it's because of the strength and the sovereignty and the power of God, okay? The person who is writing the text, the biblical writer, is writing, the earth does not move. Now, does this mean, my friends, that the Bible got cosmology wrong? No, because I agree that the Bible is not doing cosmology, okay? The writer is writing what he sees, what he feels, what he experiences. And this is not some sort of sharpshooter thing where I'm looking back and saying this is only the case because we know from modern science, okay? If somebody wants to do that, then fine. But, and I didn't live back then to like be in this different interpretive framework, but I don't, I just don't think it's the same thing. I don't think we're saying, ah, oh, we know the earth actually moves. And so this, we have to reinterpret this. And so this is now, uh, now we're going to use this rescuing device of phenomenological language where it's writing from the standpoint of the observer. That will explain it away. Well, no, that's just what we should have done from the beginning. So have people made that mistake? I'm sure. But I don't think that's what we're doing or trying to do, okay? Again, the problem is the hitch. As soon as you unhitch the Bible from science, okay, in the way that I'm talking about here, you don't run into any of these problems. You interpret the Bible on its own merits, you do your best to understand it. You interpret the science on its own merits, you do your best to understand it. When those two come in conflict, you decide what the nature of that conflict is and who's going to win based on different scenarios, okay? And again, and I agree with this, one of the biggest young age creationist like sort of arguments or, or talking points, if you will, is the fact that God wrote a history book in which he explains things and they seem to have happened a certain way. And yes, that is enough for me to, to, to very highly question many pieces of the evolutionary paradigm, especially when they're so slippery as to be changed every time we build a new telescope or whatever. Like this stuff is very, very, very slippery. And the biblical text is not slippery, and it shouldn't be if the Bible is true of, uh, in the way that it speaks about itself. So, no, I, I don't think that creationists are guilty of doing the same thing that the evolutionist is doing insofar as they are not tying the um, hitch to, of, of science to the Bible. Now, have creationists done this in the past? Yes, and probably the majority of them. And so I get that. Okay, I get that. But that's not necessary, and it's not how we have to do things going forward. And I don't think it is biblically wrong 
to actually start with the assumption looking at the text that, oh, this was written from the standpoint of the observer. That should have been the case all along. If you incorrectly hitch the Bible to science, then that's your problem, okay? But we don't want to use these over-literally, over-literal descriptions of anything in the Bible, like especially in these poetic passages, to sort of um, uh, try to say that, like, yes, our scientific model that we just came up with is now accurate because look at this biblical text that confirms it. Boy, that is just a way to get into a lot of trouble. And again, I would argue that even though this has been the case, Many thoughtful creationists, especially over the last 10 to 20 years, have not taken this approach. They have really uh, attempted to honor the biblical text as its own separate thing, the scientific information as its own separate thing, and for the most part, take them and, um, and, and, and mold them and work with them as they need to, but keeping in mind this context that we're not doing a one-to-one scientific uh, correlation between the two. And just to kind of put a pinpoint on this, for example, um, catastrophic plate tectonics. Okay, is a model of the flood that is the current uh, consensus in creationism. There are, of course, still some who disagree, some who hold the hydroplate theory. But without a doubt, the current consensus in creationism is catastrophic plate tectonics. Okay, and I hope this illustrates the difference. Creationists who hold this consensus view are not saying the Bible teaches catastrophic plate tectonics. That's not what we're saying. The Bible teaches a global flood. It gives us hints and clues about what happened during that apparently historical event that we can then take and mold a model. And when we take our model of catastrophic plate tectonics, it models something that looks a lot like the biblical descriptions. So the Bible teaches a historical global flood, and science, the correct scientific model, is, in this example, catastrophic plate tectonics. That's not the same thing as saying the Bible teaches catastrophic plate tectonics. Whereas on the Big Bang angle, what they are saying is the Bible teaches the Big Bang. Big, big difference in how these two things are approached. And I know I have been just kind of blue skying here. Let me end with some guidelines uh, that I have wrote down based on everything that we talked about to kind of <laughs> you know leave with something a little bit practical here for how to approach these issues. Okay? One, scripture and science must be interpreted independently. Talked about that ad nauseum. They must be interpreted independently in order to come to a correct conclusion. Number two, science must never magistrate over scripture. And really what I'm talking about there is the hitching of the wagon, okay? We're not going to do science, come to a scientific model, and then reinterpret scripture to fit. Because then your interpretations of scripture are just always going to be changing. And that's not how scriptural interpretation works. That's horrible exegesis and hermeneutics. Okay, number three, incorrect understanding does not equal reinterpretation. Okay, incorrect understanding does not equal reinterpret uh, a reinterpretation. Okay, so if if a if a, uh, a scholar prior to the discovery of dinosaurs read Job and it looked like a hippo, and then after the discovery of dinosaurs, it's like, oh, well, actually, it looks like this could be a dinosaur. Or I'll just go here after the discovery of information from the ancient Near East that would suggest that it was perhaps a mythological creature. Again, we're not reinterpreting scripture to fit, but our understanding of what it could, um, what, what if any real material thing in the world that it could have been talking about, uh, it actually is. But the interpretation of scripture is a lot more vague than that, right? In this case, it's we have this animal. It seems to be real. The terminology is that of a mythological creature, though. And so what do we do with that? Okay. And so we look at that, but we're not, we're not tying the scientific discovery. This was a brachiosaur to the text of scripture. 
Again, huge difference. Number four, we're evaluating historical claims carefully, okay? Again, all the stuff that happened with the whole Galileo debacle, what actually happened wrong there? My argument is that they hitched the science to the scripture. That was the problem. And then, uh, and there's a lot more that we could go into with that too. There's, it's a big topic. Number five, God's word has a more sure track record than science. It just does, right? God's word has a more sure track record than science. Prophetically speaking, evidentially speaking, um, in my opinion, it has a much more sure uh, track record than science. And in fact, it was because of a biblical worldview that science even arose in the first place. So um, that's what I'm going to leave you with, my friends. I hope this has been at least somewhat helpful to think through some of these ideas. Again, if you have questions or thoughts, I'm always open to hearing them and uh, happy to kind of go along this journey with you. All right. Thank you guys so much. God bless. Take care. We'll catch you in the next episode.